0: When I send complaints that customers send to me, the media person at Bell Rogers, all these companies, the banks, a lot of them, I do a lot of it at 11 o'clock at night when I'm watching the news. These people often get back to me at night. They take it really seriously. So they are concerned about their public image. But for the customer, they sometimes feel that nobody pays attention. Nobody cares. They're stuck in a call center. They can't get out of the call center. They can't get the info on the executives. So they really need someone in the media to help them just break through that Corporate wall of don't talk to us, leave us alone, use our call center. The fun companies like McKenzie, I was telling you about them, they wouldn't even speak to the press. They said, We don't consider the reader of the Globe and Mail our customer. We consider only the sales force our customers. So I got to know a guy who was invited to a McKenzie conference for sellers. And he smuggled me in as one of his people. And I'm sitting in the audience and they're showing all these pictures of their last so-called sales training meeting in Jamaica or somewhere in the Caribbean. And they're throwing volleyballs around and they're playing golf and they're just having a great time. You know, they must have learned something in between all that. But it was really just, you know, have fun at our expense and sell our funds. And then a couple of years later, the Ontario Securities Commission, probably the other ones as well, said, from now on, if you have any sales training conferences that are free for the Salesforce, yeah. you can have them only in Canada, nowhere else. This is the
1: Personal Finance Show. Hi, I'm Beau Humphreys, and this is The Personal Finance Show. Ellen Roseman has been sticking up for Canadians as an advocate for consumer rights for the past 35 years. If you're interested in Canadian personal finance, there's a pretty good chance you've already read something written by Ellen Roseman. Ellen's been a personal finance and consumer advocacy columnist at the Toronto Star for over 20 years, and though she officially retired from the Star in 2015, Ellen agreed to stay on in a freelance capacity to write a weekly column, featuring consumer issues she believes will have the most impact for Canadians. Ellen has written eight books, including Money 101, Money 201, and her latest book, Fight Back, 81 Ways to Help You Save Money and Protect Yourself from Corporate Trickery. Ellen also teaches investing and personal finance courses at the University of Toronto Continuing Studies and currently sits on the board as co-chair of the Canadian Foundation for Advancement of Investor Rights which we talk more about in the episode. Ellen joined me in the studio in Hamilton to tell her personal finance story.
0: My grandmother used to go to Florida every year and she'd bring us back Presents, which we were all excited about, but what she did for our birthdays was she gave us one share of Bell Telephone. Really? And in those days, she said it was fifty dollars a share. That sounded like yeah, a thousand dollars. Yeah, that's a lot of money. We didn't really know what it was. I obviously we knew what a telephone was, yeah, and yeah. we kept these shares. I can't remember if I think our mother probably put them somewhere for us. So I knew we had these shares, and I I got a briefing about what the stock market was like. But then it was interesting because when i was in my 20s for whatever reason it must have been a trip or some you know some expense that i can't remember i got rid of all my shares i went to the bank they said we can sell them for you and they sold them for me and then later on uh when i was working at the star they were doing a series called my worst money mistake (laughs) and they asked me and i said I'm going to check and see what... I have three brothers and I have three cousins who all got the shares. So we were all older then and I wanted to find out who kept them and who didn't. And I think uh, about half of us sold them and half of us kept them. Okay. Now Bell Telephone until recently was not a great performer on the stock market. Okay. You know, it, uh, it had uh, management problems they didn 't increase their dividend at one point. there was a big coup to get rid of the management, take them over, and then it fell through because of two thousand and eight crash when they couldn 't okay. get the oh, financing. Wow. Yeah. The bondholders went to court. It was a big mess. But I believe that any stock like that—it used to be known as a widow's and orphan stock—because okay. you recommend it to your mother and sure. to your, you know, your
1: child. It just throughout the ages, yeah. it, it holds right. Better to hold it, yeah. yes.
0: So, but I didn't realize that because I just like many people, what can I do to get the cash that I need right yeah, now? I need so money. You sure. sell assets.
1: Yeah, and so you would get one share like every year. Yeah. So, yeah, you, know, you do you remember how much it was at the time you sold it?
0: I don't, it was probably a of maybe a then? couple thousand Yeah, dollars. and yes. so
1: enough to fund whatever vacation or whatever yes. it is you wanted to do.
0: When I did the article, this was maybe about yeah. what five was the result ten of that? years ago. It hadn't gone up that much. It was maybe about $5,000. Okay. But still, you know, the dividends. And, and then the other thing, of course, that I didn't realize, because as a child you don't realize, when you get a dividend check, you spend it, right? Yeah, <laughs> And okay. it's so exciting. Oh, you were spending
1: even, the dividends too. Yeah, okay. even
0: if it was only, you know, a few shares, if you got a dollar or two, that was money in your pocket. Like you didn't know about reinvesting because you were still young.
1: Yeah. Well, my first dividend uh, check that I got was for 66 cents. Yeah. And I showed it to my wife. <laughs> <She's>, <laughs> she said, come back to me when it's $66. <laughs> and I did. Yeah. Right? <laughs> but it was just so exciting still to get the 66 cents. And so, yeah, I mean, I, and then, of course, well, you, you have to cash it. Like this, If you don't uh, sign up for the reinvestment, and I guess they would have had an option for you to do that. That you didn't know about, maybe at the yes, time, yes. yeah. Or it wasn't you buying it, so your grandmother wouldn't have been able to enroll you in a dividend reinvestment plan <laughs> at the same time. Too difficult. Yeah. I yeah. Think so. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Okay. So you you're getting that. So that's that's pretty cool. Uh, and so, like, was your. Was she really financially savvy or?
0: I think so. Yes. She uh, who's American originally okay. and she, I guess, had learned from her husband who was pretty savvy yeah. and her parents about, you know, hold stocks. It's a good way to invest in the future and have your own savings.
1: That's actually pretty amazing. You know, considering what we've all been talking about in the last couple of years, you know, the ad- advocacy for women to be in control of their own, of their money, right? And the stories that come up, you know, which uh, you've mentioned about, you know, people who... Uh, maybe their spouse was taking care of the money and then they pass and they don't know what to do so your grandma was like way ahead of the times yes the
0: behavior that you see around you models your behavior in the future so my father was also Mm. a really good investor I remember he started out with an investors group salesperson who came to the house and sent birthday cards to all of us all the time and I was so impressed with that (laughs) and then eventually like many people he decided well I'm not going to do that I'll try something else so then he got involved in individual stocks and then after he retired he worked with a like a um, money manager who was a investment counselor, he actually hired him to write reports. So I mm. saw a lot of investing on my father's part and as I got in more into investing, I started with an advisor, learned how to go from mutual funds to stocks. And now I I manage it all myself.
1: So you do you, you, you yeah. you're not like a uh, buy and like an ETF and or like a, a robo advisor person or anything. like that?
0: I have some of those accounts, but sure. I've had really good luck with a number of stocks, and it's often the buy and hold philosophy and reinvesting the dividends. And it's amazing to see how those reinvested dividends can really grow. So mm. I I like that approach.
1: So it's like a, a, a little bit of everything, right? It's like you yes. you self directed for for a bit of your portfolio, but you know not all of it because maybe that would be too much to manage or, or how, like why. Why not do all of it yourself?
0: Well, I had an account with an advisor for a number of years, my RSP, and then I I opened other accounts without her. So I had the uh, locked-in RSP, and I had a a TFSA, and I had another RSP it was only last year that she told me she was leaving the broker that she was with and she was moving somewhere else Okay. and I just didn't see the point of moving at all I was trying to centralize it at that point yeah. so I thought I'd take it over but it was already invested pretty well so I didn't really need to do much with it and I left it where it was
1: but you're aware of where everything's yes. at yes. and you've obviously done your due diligence on that and then since you have an interest in, and seem to enjoy investing in certain stocks or buying and holding and seeing where things go then that's a, a good reason for you to do that you learn this eventually but when you were cashing out those bell stocks (laughs) you must not have been so interested in the markets at that point no no, so, it wasn't. So this was—was was you were you a teenager at this uh, point?
0: No, I was in my early twenties. Early twenties, and yes. so
1: you went to—you uh, went to university for? Uh, I went
0: to McGill University. Yeah. I took a degree in philosophy. Okay,
1: yeah, nice. <laughs> and
0: I had no idea what I wanted to do. I ended up there because it was one of the few places where you didn't just have to read things and memorize them and okay. spout the answers. Yeah. Uh, I really loved the fact that when we broke up into small groups, they would say, "Here's what Plato said." Tell us why Plato was wrong, or why you know you were arguing with all these amazing people. And then I got a master's in philosophy at U of T, and then uh, because I had done a lot of journalism as a a university student, I thought of that as a possible career. And I ended up in business reporting, mainly I guess because that's where the jobs were. Uh, There were openings. I didn't have a whole lot of experience when i got into the job market okay so i started out writing for a business trade paper called style which was about women's fashion not something that i really wanted to do but it was a stepping stone and so then I it went, was
1: a business uh sorry sorry to interrupt it was yes. a business paper but you were writing the fashion section
0: no it was a uh, style came out every two weeks it was uh for the garment trade oh for, and oh, so trade, i remember like i that. covered okay. fabrics and textiles and i caught i I covered something called Women's Inner Fashion, which was like bras and girdles and pantyhose. Really? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> it was great, actually. And the
1: target for this publication, who was the reader? Uh,
0: retailers and manufacturers. Yeah. It was for everybody who worked in the garment trade. And there used to be a very big industry at the time this was in the 70s and since then a lot of it has moved to china and you know they used to have quotas on imports so uh the government uh, propped up a lot of it but then over the years the, the quotas went away and so did the industry wow but it was really fun and what i learned was that when you cover business and you must find this too Everyone is really chatty and they're really interested in telling you all about their competitors and what their competitors are doing sure. or not doing. And they're really into giving you their view of why they're right and someone else is wrong. So you learn <laughs> a lot. There's more people that you talk to, the more you really understand how these industries work.
1: Yeah. And so let's step back because we jumped ahead a little bit. I want to know if you uh, did, like if you made any money early on in your, like, did you do early jobs or anything like that where you want to work?
0: Summer jobs, but nothing
1: much. Yeah, nothing no. much, right? And, yeah. and, uh, like, would you just spend that money? You think? Was yes. it just like just pocket money? and what, what would you need to work for just to keep busy or did you need that that money for no
0: I was lucky because I lived at home uh, I went to McGill and I just commuted every day and the tuition was low and I got scholarships and my parents oh, paid the rest and so I just did it for something to do so okay, I worked so in retail a lot but I, I probably spent it all well,
1: what kind of retail if you don't mind me yeah, uh, drilling down Eatons, on that Eaton's the big department oh, store downtown okay, yeah, yeah nice. I worked
0: as a salesperson and then I worked as a cashier I think working as a cashier is great because you're learning about how things have to balance at the end of the sure, day, yeah and they give you a lot of responsibility when you're closing out at the end of the day
1: it's an interesting combo of, uh, of you know basic accounting skills as you, as yes. you said, which i mean or even just balancing your own personal finances quite an interesting uh, uh thing to think about you know balancing the day and then you might you know apply that to your maybe you did apply that to your finances do you remember were is that something that you took with you or like were you always balanced in terms of your personal uh personal life in terms of debt or Did you have any of that?
0: I didn't have debt. I think that I, until we uh, finally bought a house, my husband and I. But yeah, uh, obviously credit cards, but I tried to pay them off as quickly as possible. And I did have savings, but I probably just put it in a savings account. It took Mm. me a long time to get back into the investing world. I probably didn't really until the late 1980s when um, as part of my uh, career, I'd been at the Globe and Mail for about 10 years covering the consumer beat. But, I decided it was time for a change, and I moved into the report on business, and all of a sudden, they had me covering mutual funds. I didn't know mutual funds at all. (laughs) Right
1: away, and they they were probably relatively new products in the 80s, if I'm not mistaken.
0: They'd been around for a while, but there were more of the banks that were doing it, and this was when a lot of small independent companies started selling their products. And after the crash in uh, 1987, September eighty seven there was a fund called the McKenzie Industrial Horizons Fund. Okay. And it had done well only because it was so new that it hadn't put most of its cash into the market yet. And so ah. its numbers were better. <laughs> and I thought, I'm going to buy that one. But I couldn't buy it directly from the company because they didn't allow it. Hmm. So I had to buy it from someone who was in you know a a registered uh, fund seller an advisor yeah and I just went in the papers and looked around and found an ad and called someone up and got it that way
1: it's a lot of work
0: yeah it was then yeah Yeah. for sure
1: so it's such a contrast to today yeah right and and uh, you know the stories that you hear from uh, a lot of uh, you know personal finance bloggers today is like that I went to the bank and they told me I didn't have enough to invest and that kind of thing Well, you had to work Work to do it. And and then when you got there, did you have to have a minimum amount of money? Do you remember at the time?
0: No, I think it was fairly easy to put a small amount in and then okay. probably do it on a monthly withdrawal uh, from my bank account. There wasn't the same pressure too on the stockbrokers to have big accounts. Okay. okay. So they were quite happy to put up with me. And I think that I did have to go through a few different advisors because they move around and they sure. go from firm to firm. And uh, it took a while till I found someone I really liked and
1: started doing it more seriously. But you always felt that your money was secure in this way. I, I don't know if that was a big concern. Do you, do you know when uh, Things like the million dollars per investment account, that kind of thing came around? Is that? Yeah, that was around then, the Canadian Investor Protection Fund. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So so I don't know if you even thought about that at the time. You just, was there a lot of trust there? Like if you went to this broker, was there like automatic trust?
0: Well, there was trust because as it turned out, it was uh, on the street we lived on turned out that was a distant cousin of mine living on the street, okay. and it was her daughter. So she was my cousin, but we okay. didn't know each other. Yeah. But just knowing that they were related to me helped a lot, sure. and she was very conscientious. She was one of these uh, brokers who worked for one of the big firms, but did her own research and tried to find things that were different from what the analysts were recommending. And we started with mutual funds and instead of the bigger names she was finding the ones that had the lower management expense ratios. Well, that seems rare. Yeah. Was back in the, the day. Yeah. yeah. This was like okay. late late eighties, early nineties.
1: What was a low M E R at that at that point, do you remember? Uh
0: one to one and a half percent. Yeah,
1: one to one and a half. Yeah. yeah. As opposed to probably closer to two or two and a half or three. Yes. There was there were there ones that were like more than three, like some really yeah, some good of the foreign uh, funds, the yeah.
0: international, and then the tech funds, which were just starting. They sure. were pretty high as well.
1: They would probably justify uh, higher returns with these higher fees or promise higher returns, I guess.
0: And they were saying too that because they were managing a lot of stocks that were overseas, they needed more expertise to okay. find them
1: and trade them. An Actually, like a research team and yeah. things like that. Okay, so but you said this was about. Were you working at the Gold Mail for 10 years uh, by the time you started investing? Yes. So let's step back then. So you finished school, you're getting your jobs in journalism because you you always liked writing. Did you like writing when you were younger? The
0: funny thing was I didn't like it in high school at all Okay. because it was writing compositions about stuff that didn't interest me. (laughs) Of course. And when I got to university, because it was my hometown, I had all these high school friends in first year and then in second year, a lot of them disappeared. Some of them flunked out, some of them transferred Mm. and I had no friends and I started joining everything. So I joined a sorority and I joined... A handbook, and I went into the uh, McGill Daily office. It came out five days a week. Wow. And I said, I'm here to you know, help out, but I don't want to write. I don't like writing. <laughs> and they said, okay. And they put me to work doing some other stuff. And then one day something happened and I was the only person in the office. And they said, you got to go and cover this event okay. it was somebody speaking. It's like a
1: movie. It's like a, thing right. in a movie, like, Oh, uh, but I just get coffee. That's what yeah, I do. <laughs> exactly. And I
0: said, what do I do? And they said, well, when you get back here, we'll just take out some of these old newspaper editions, uh, and you'll look at it and just copy the same kind of style. Sure. Okay. And the funny thing was, I remember, <laughs> I remember writing that story on a typewriter, of course. Yeah. And after, when I went home, I thought, I really like this. Okay. <laughs> and just after that one story, it totally turned me around. And then I started writing for the paper. I started editing for the paper. That's I amazing. started going there on the weekends. My mother and father said the traditional thing that people say. You think a place is a hotel? (laughs) We never see you. You come (laughs) home late at night. You leave early in the morning. Wow. And it became my life.
1: You stumbled into this passion. Yes. Wow. I like that a lot. And but you didn't like there wasn't any way to focus in journalism in school or anything. Uh, you or well was McGill there?
0: didn't have a journalism program. Okay, there was nothing like that. And I got there in second year. It was a four year program, so I uh, did it for three years. And it was very exciting. At one point, the student council got upset with one of our stories, and we got kicked out. And then oh, there really? was uh, like a hearing, and then we got reinstated. Okay. And it was the late sixties. There was a lot of student activism. Sure, sure. And then when I graduated, I thought, what am I going to do? So I got the master's in Toronto just so I could move out of Montreal and finally leave my parents' house. And then in Toronto, I thought, what's my ideal occupation? Well, I love reading books, so I'll go into book publishing. Oh, yeah. So I applied to 15 different Canadian book publishers. I think only one of them even interviewed me. And they said, you have a master's degree in philosophy. This is going to be so boring for you. You're (laughs) going to be compiling indexes most of the time. (laughs) So I thought, okay, forget that. And what do I do next? And I kind of fell back on the journalism and got into the business journalism side. And this was like 1970. And here I am still doing it.
1: <laughs> yeah. So you were reporting on the, uh, the fashion yes. stuff for the industry and then you eventually moved into you said the consumer yes uh, what happened
0: was that i was at mclean hunter which was a big magazine publishing company and it was trade magazines but they had some consumer publications and one of them was the financial post okay which uh, is now part of the national post in those days it was a weekly but it was in the same building as i was so i wandered in and i showed them my clippings and i said i cover retail i cover consumer issues i really like this kind of stuff can you find a, a spot for me so that i was freelancing for year and then they gave me a full-time job and as part of that job i had to write the odd stock story about oh. some of these retail companies and then again that was scary too because i didn't know anything about stocks yeah. but i talked to they had an investment editor who was really good and you talked to the analysts and you put something together
1: this is your early learning about i guess the finances of a company yes but you weren't investing at all yet no no so what are, what are you doing you're making some money you're making yes. Probably decent money, uh, you know, for this is in the middle of Toronto now. Yeah. How how is Toronto for living like costs in those days was it an expensive city no or? no
0: i was renting i had a yeah. studio apartment uh, i had some money in the bank i was doing okay once i left the financial post i went to work for the toronto star then to the globe and mail and then back to the toronto star and it was pretty good life as a journalist not like today because you had job security you had benefits you, you had a that. pension okay you had a union your wages went up every year if you got merit pay you would keep your merit pay every time the union got an increase you would get an equivalent increase okay so it was it was a very secure life today it's it's really hard for journalists there's no job security that's you know you're worried that the business is just going to disappear but it was it was a lot of fun and and really enjoyable
1: well let's fast forward then for a sec so you're are you still staff at the Toronto Star
0: no I took a, a retirement package a few years ago okay but I'm still freelancing once a week for them
1: okay so the retirement package, which I guess you said you had a pension from, from which ones, if you don't mind talking yes. about that, did you have pensions from all of these companies?
0: Well, the interesting thing was when I started at the Globe and Mail, I was in my mid 20s and they had a pension, but a number of people said, Oh, you know, if you don't opt into the pension, yeah. they're supposed to follow you and make sure that you get in. It's a mandatory pension, but yeah. they said, Stay out of it because. Then you'll have all the money for yourself. And I'm in my 20s, so I thought, okay, I'm not going to join the (laughs) pension plan. And and I did actually uh, invest in my RSPs, okay. and in those days I was getting pretty good rates on GICs. I mean,
1: give or take, right? That's you can right. do it yourself. I mean, uh, some pensions have much better uh, matchings. I know the Ontario ones, hoop, yes. hoop and the the Teachers' Pension. Uh, it's way better to put it in there than it is to do it yourself in a self directed R- R- RSP. But
0: wouldn't you believe? By the time I was forty, I guess I was in the business section at that point, and I started thinking, why am I not? Taking advantage of this pension. Yeah. So I knocked on their door and okay. I said, sign me
1: up. Okay, so uh, yes. how many years have gone by then? Or were you uh, still there about, the whole time?
0: Uh, I was there for 21 years, so Whoa. it was about 14 years maybe that I'd missed. Wow.
1: <laughs> so what are you able to do at that point?
0: Well, I was in the plan. It was about 10 years of the pension that I had. Okay. So then when I left the Globe to go to the Star, I turned it into an, a locked-in oh, RSP. Oh, Yeah. yeah.
1: Yes. Yeah. And, that's, and then that would have been open for you when you were 55 at minimum, which I'm guessing you just kept Yeah, I there. just kept it. Yeah, yeah. I kept going. And so then you go to the star right away.
0: And then when I was at the star, I was management for two years. So I think I got a management pension for those two years, which was better. Okay. And then I went back to reporting and I had their pension. And so now I'm getting the star pension uh, paid out to me, but I'm also getting the star uh, freelance fees and the... The package I yeah. spread over three years, so that was coming in as well. Okay, so it's interesting. Once you retire, all of a sudden, you really understand multiple streams of income.
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> in a way, you didn't before, and yeah. also
0: taxes become a huge issue. Of
1: course, you have all these because you before you would have had one T four. Yeah, um, wherever you are. At the I time. did have some freelance, and, but and freelance yeah. okay. And so, when did you start doing these uh, stories? Uh, you know about people who are well, harmed by the system. I guess. Oh, yeah. Is that a good way to, yes. to put it? And they just feel like they have no recourse. And you like, do you remember like an early when you started being an advocate for, uh, I mean, I guess it's the personal finance space, is it? Yes. Yes, I think so.
0: At the Toronto Star, the first time in the 70s, I was writing some of that because I was so interested in the consumer movement. Ralph Nader was my hero, you know, unsafe (laughs) at any speed and cars and food labeling and cosmetics. And there were many, many issues. And then I did that at the Globe for a while, and then I moved into business. But with mutual funds, there was a big consumer movement yeah, at that okay. point. You know, I remember that the fund companies like mckenzie I was telling you about them, they wouldn't even speak to the press. They said, we don't consider the reader of the Globe and Mail our customer. What? We consider only the sales force our customer. Oh, okay. So they invited, uh, I I got to know a guy who was invited to a McKenzie conference for sellers Mm. and he smuggled me in as one of his people and I'm sitting in the audience and they're showing all these pictures of their last so-called sales training meeting in Jamaica or somewhere in the Caribbean and they're throwing volleyballs around and they're playing golf and they're just having a great time. You know, they must've learned something in between all that, but it was really just, you know, have fun at our expense and sell our funds. And then a couple of years later, the Ontario Securities Commission, probably the other ones as well, said, from now on, if you have any sales training conferences that are free for the
1: Salesforce, yeah.
0: you can have them only in Canada. Nowhere oh. else.
1: <laughs> wow. And they, they can dictate that? Yes. Or, or like, yes, are they, are they saying that you wouldn't be able to... I guess they they, they make the rules, right?
0: Yeah. They're trying to Mm. avoid conflict of interest. And this issue became more and more predominant as we got older because the defined benefit pension plan fell away. Yeah. Many people had no savings. Their RSP was their only way to try and create an income for themselves Uh when they retired. And... They wanted objective advice and they didn't want to know that their seller was getting free trips or, you know, for a while there, I was doing a lot of speeches where the investment advisor would hire me. And then I found out that they had, didn't even know who I was. The fund company was paying for it all, right? Oh, so yeah. th- there were all kinds of great deals in there for the fund advisors. And sometimes I go to their conferences where they just have like... These were like straight education where they'd hear about the uh, the new funds and how they worked. But they'd have these lavish spreads of food and toward the end of the speech, people would rush out and not even listen to the end because they
1: had to get first to those, you know, <laughs> the drinks and the food. <laughs> so they're just, they're basically selling the ones that give them the best benefits at this point. Yes. Is that... Not anymore because no, not anymore.
0: The, the regulators have gone...
1: But that took a while.
0: It took a while. And there's still this thing of embedded commissions, the trailer commissions, where they get paid by the fund manager for every year the client is in the fund. And what the regulators have done is say, you've got to disclose it. They call that CRM2, Customer Relationship Management 2. And once a year, it's on your statement. But disclosure in writing is still not that good. People want disclosure verbally. That's not really mandated yet. And many people say disclosure forget it we want to just cut out these embedded commissions because they're hidden they're not really fair people want to know that their advisor has only the client's best interest at heart and it's not necessarily something that's good for the advisor
1: i wouldn't mind people getting paid for something as long as i knew that they were like you said they had a fiduciary responsibility which yeah. they do not No, nope. which still people are surprised to hear and i know i was surprised to to know that people don't really care if it's a good product for me they They're really just caring about their pocket. That's not everyone, of course, right? There are people who care, but they don't have to.
0: Yes, there are, I'm sure, some really good conscientious people. And it's not an easy job because if you have older clients, if they're suddenly sick or they die, you have to spring into action and help the family and make sure that they're taken care of and everything else. But yes, they don't have to put the client's interest ahead of their own interest, that best interest standard, as they call it in Canada. Yeah. It came very close to being uh, accepted, but then a number of provinces said they don't want it, they want something that sort of targeted reforms, and they just weren't keen on it. And only two provinces, Ontario, and I think New Brunswick, supported a best interest standard, so nothing happened.
1: But who, who's voting for, like, who decides on this vote? Well,
0: the securities regulators work for the government. Yeah. But then when they say to the industry, we're thinking of banning trailer commissions, they consult. So they'll say you have two or three months to send in your information and we'll look Mm. at it. And then if you go online, you can see that they might get, say, 200 submissions 180 are from all the fund companies, all the you know the big players with a vested interest. Maybe 20 are from consumers or consumer groups. And often these consumers, the individuals, are saying, this happened to me. I didn't like it. I got screwed. I don't want anybody else to have this happen. Yeah. And the regulators are mostly lawyers. They take those company submissions much more seriously because mm. they all speak the same language. Okay. The consumers often aren't well-organized, and about 10 years ago, somebody who used to work for the Securities Commission had the idea of setting up a consumer group that would speak the same language as everyone else. It's called FAIR Canada Foundation Mm -hmm. for Advancement of Investor Rights, FAIR. I'm now co-chair of that, and I've been with it for 10 years, and it's a struggle to get the money to keep it going, but boy, it's done some great work because the regulators are really glad that someone is speaking in the consumer voice. So it but in a way that they can use that to build their policy and yeah, the legislation. Yeah, I was going to say, it,
1: it, it brings you to that level that a, a business would have been at, that they can take you seriously, and you have yes. organization. So you, you've, made, you've made this happen. So, so you see this uh, you know, Jamaica trip or whatever the slides or whatever you're seeing the <laughs> photos, and do you then go write uh, an article about this kind of stuff, or is this, is it, does, it, does it build or mull? Like, wh- when do you start telling the people about this?
0: I've been writing articles all the way along. I can't remember now. I, I used to put them all in scrapbooks. Yeah. And uh, I still have my scrapbooks, so I've got to <laughs> look at some of them. But And then they were online. And as I've discovered, those online articles don't stay there forever, especially the earlier ones. Oh, they okay. disappear. Uh, but yeah, I definitely, I did one once about, you know, confessions of a seminar speaker okay. as I realized, you know, how the whole thing worked. And the other thing that really got to me is, you know, it still happens in RSP season where somebody says... Would you like a free dinner? I'm going to tell you all about your taxes. And this broker has the dinner. It's really nice. And they talk about taxes or whatever. And then they say, if you'd like a second uh, opinion about your investments, please let me know. Mm. And so people say, oh, sure, why not? And then they find out that the, well, they'll sign up with this person maybe because he seems much more interested in them and much more current. And a lot of people have these investment portfolios that they bought about 20 years ago. Their advisor hasn't really done much with them yeah, and they're not really it. happy. Yep. They, uh, they've got poor returns. They're, they're not sure how to compare them, but they have a feeling that something's wrong. So they sign up with this new person and then they discover that whatever was said in the seminar was really just a front to get them in. And then often the investment strategy that they got at that point was much more risky. Oh. so they might get higher returns at first but then they get much lower returns when the market falls and uh that can be a difficult situation too so i i remember someone too who um said uh she she liked the new advisor and she said well i i I have my RSP already, so I'll give you my taxable portfolio because the advisor said, if you sign up with me, I'm going to give you a Tilly hat. You know, those wonderful hats with the guarantees and everything. So she was excited. Yeah, she got the hat. And then she found out her investments were doing really badly and this was her taxable portfolio. But then she didn't know that, well, what happened first was the advisor looked at her taxable portfolio and he says, these are all bank funds. Bank funds are really bad. I think you should do Templeton and trimark and you know all these competitors to the banks sold them all reinvested the money didn't tell her about the tax bill yeah so then when the tax bill came when income tax time came she thought where's the money going to come from i'm going to have to cash in units of the funds to pay the taxes she went back to the company and the compliance officer said you run a marketing research business of your own right and she said yes and he said well, don't you have an accountant and legal advice? And she said, yes. And he said, well, you should have asked them. Uh, And she said, this person who sold me these funds is a CFP, Certified Financial Planner. Isn't that that person's job to tell me about the tax consequences of a move that he recommended to me? And they said, no, you're in business. You should have found some legal and accounting help on your own.
1: Wow. And and then what year is this about?
0: This was about 1990.
1: Yeah, so that that sounds like, this is like the heyday of mutual funds yes. of, uh, where everyone's making, you know, just incredible commissions, I'm sure. And then just eventually, what, a Vanguard comes up with some ETFs in the States and like, it all just starts to build, right? And, and the, the, there's these alternatives. And then you saw you saw all this happen.
0: Yes, it's been very exciting. Yeah. Uh, we there was a petition at one point to have Vanguard come to Canada yeah. when it was still selling mutual funds only in early days in, in the US. Yeah. I remember signing the petition and agitating. I learned all about Bogleheads, Jack yeah. Bogle.
1: Who just recently passed. Yes, right. right.
0: Yeah. yeah. And his books are terrific. I love reading. He's a t- terrific writer. And Vanguard didn't want to come to Canada because you had to set up an office here and have staff. And they were looking at other alternatives and they ended up going to Mexico or somewhere, somewhere else completely different. So they passed on that. And it was really more in, you know, like, mid two thousands that the ETF started. And it still took Vanguard a while to start an ETF company. But they've made a huge impact in Canada because by the time they got here we had iShares and we had maybe five others. Yeah. And Vanguard kept lowering the price lower, 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 and started a price war going. And we're still seeing it going on because first it was on ETFs and now it's on those all in one ETFs which combine a bunch of different Canadian, American stocks, bonds. And they're getting to the point where they're incredibly cheap. And the robo-advisors look expensive compared to these. Yeah,
1: you can buy one ETF that is basically a balanced portfolio, right? Yes. What would be an MER on that kind of thing?
0: I think it's 0.15 or 0.17. Wow. I think the first one might have come out at 0.2. So a tenth, uh, you know, uh uh Of a percent. Yeah, yeah. Very small.
1: And, you know, versus two and a half in the 90s yes. on average. Yeah, for a and balanced fund. For a balanced fund, which is this is already balanced by itself. And then, of course, yes. you pay the robo advisors a half a percent to put together a balanced portfolio of ETFs, which are already very low. So that still usually works out to less than a percent. How would Bogle have done this to keep the fund cost so low? Do you have an insight yes, into that? Yes, in the
0: U.S., uh, they were in Valley Forge, Pennsylvania, and they set themselves up as a cooperative, like a, a credit union or something okay, where yeah. they didn't make a profit and the, the profits went to the shareholders. Amazing. They didn't do that in Canada. I think it was more complicated for them to do it in Canada, but they just always had an emphasis on lowering the costs in whatever way they could. So they were always looking at the market and they felt that their name implied that they would be lower priced than anyone else. So yeah. that's how they've operated.
1: And tech- Technology, I guess, is, has yes. helped that along yes. uh, for other companies in Canada, and then, of course, for them to come to Canada as well, which is yeah. just recently. They right? do
0: have an office here. They hired some really good people who were in Canada already who yeah. knew the Canadian market really well. They're still not number one. iShares is huge or BlackRock, but the ETF industry has grown quite substantially. We're still not at the point where it's you know a big challenger to mutual funds because there's a lot of money in mutual funds. and. And people still like that one-on-one service with the ETF. If you just want to buy ETFs on your own, you've got to open a discount brokerage account and then pick them, hold them, sell them, trade them, whatever. And that seems to be a lot of work. Uh, Along the way, back in, I think it was, I put out a book called Money 101 in 2003 and then Money 201 a year after. And while I was doing the research for the uh, the pr- promotion for the book, mm-hmm. I went on uh, a TV show, uh, Studio One on T- TV Ontario. Yeah, yeah. And somebody from U of T called and said, I work in continuing studies. We have adults. We think that there might be an interest in teaching them personal finance. Would okay. you be interested? Fantastic. So I thought, I don't know anything about it, but I'll try it out. And, and I called my course Money 101 and Money 201. And then after a while, I thought, well, How about if I start teaching investing and I do it at night? And that was like opening the door because those investing courses, I think I've been doing them for about 10 or 12 years now. The Money 101s were in the morning and I have maybe 12 to 15 people, but at night they were 50, 60, 70. I think I had 75 people once. Wow. Very popular. People didn't understand investing, they were keen to find someone to talk to them about it in a way that made sense, that wasn't full of jargon, that was objective, that nobody yeah. had a vested interest. So I've really been following this a lot as a way to kind of teach people sure. about it. That's and at the beginning, it was always like, at the end of the course, people would say, I know mutual funds are expensive. I know that money takes away from what I should be getting. Mm-hmm. I don't like mutual funds, but I'd see them later and say, well, have you bought any ETFs yet? Well, I, I'm thinking about it. But it's like a hard bridge to cross. Yeah. And so that's why I loved when the robo advisors came along because that's one stop shopping. You just, you know, find their app, you give them the info, they pick the portfolio, it's all one account, and they try really hard to make it simple and to cut out all the, the complicated stuff.
1: Because it's not for everybody, but yes. like you said, it's for people who are just sitting, oh, I'm going to do it next month, I'm going to do it next month. They may be sitting on a bunch of money in their savings, right? Yes. And would that be the typical person who would come to your your investing course? They have money to invest, but they just don't know what to to do.
0: A lot of them have mutual funds. I think a lot of them are unhappy with their mutual funds.
1: They knew that that this was like, so you would have been writing about this, how fees are high, right? Yes. I mean, how many articles have you written about... You know, stop paying high fees and moving. <laughs> many, 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 many. Not right? only me, but no, various everybody. other. Yeah, yes, we're exactly. all doing it.
0: And people know that. It's kind of like, well, you know, sugar's bad for you. Yeah, but I like sugar and <laughs> no. I don't really like diet free stuff. Or, you know, if, if they're good products, they're all across town and I don't really feel the need to go all the way out there just to buy them.
1: And who's putting these barriers up? Is it the companies themselves? Like, I, why is it? Why did it start to be so hard? I mean, money was always for the. What, for the person with a master's in finance? Uh, how did it, like, I mean, okay, well, I keep going back to your grandma because I'm very impressed. Oh, yeah. Right? It was your grandma, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, like, how did, she just picked it up from, what, her, her and her husband talked about it. We yeah. just need to talk about this stuff, no? Yeah,
0: you kind of often model your behavior on people around you yeah. and in her... You know, she grew up wealthy. My mother said that they had a maid all the time and she never learned to cook because the maid considered the kitchen her territory and she never allowed the kids in there to okay. to try anything out. So, yeah, she was in a good family. But remember mutual funds when they started back in the 60s or something, they were seen as the doorway for average people to buy yes. stocks and yes. hold stocks. I think because, uh,
1: Rona Bierenbaum mentioned this to me. Yeah. She said they were actually the better product at the time, yeah, right? Because you had to do what? you Well, you would get GICs or whatever. I mean, they would, maybe those were available or, or yes. bonds or yes. whatever and it was. And people could bonds. buy
0: stocks, but it was hard and they really didn't feel comfortable so doing it the on way. their own. Okay. Yes. So okay. mutual funds were yeah. a brilliant invention. And I think they really helped a lot of people get into the market and make much more money on their um, savings than a sure. uh, simple uh, savings account or GIC would make. But then the cost kept rising as the assets rose. That's what the problem was. Why did that happen? Usually with economies of scale, the assets get bigger, the costs go down. It was partly because they had a protected market, especially in Canada. Like I was saying, Mm -hmm. the foreign companies couldn't come in unless they set up a whole infrastructure here. Not all of them wanted to. Mm -hmm. So they were greedy and there was no real competition. And it was only when the ETFs And the index funds, they're still around, but there's not the same growth there. But when the passive style of investing finally started to catch on, they felt some competition. And now some of the companies, like I go back to McKenzie again, which is now part of Investors Group. They had a CEO at one point who ran a whole ad campaign about how index funds and passive investing was horrible that people weren't telling the truth, that they were talking only about the MERs, but not about the acquisition costs, which is true. You know, we don't always talk about the, the commissions to buy and sell. Sure. But they were advertising about, they actually used the word for passive investing and indexing, guaranteed mediocrity. Oh, really? So they were all wedded to the notion that active management gives you much better returns because active managers can beat the index. But we all know now that active managers only beat the index for a couple of years, and then they start going back to being just tracking the index or underperforming the
1: index. But we needed time to find that out, right? Yes. And so the, we now, we have studies now that yes. tell us. But at the time, they were able to say, well, of course we're better. We have people working, you know, this is our job to the, invest with Joel. Or, is that yes, that's it. That was Fidelity. So fidelity. Yeah. And it's like this person is like our Warren Buffett and he will, you know, but I always say even Warren Buffett would never claim to get you the returns. He would always say, I'm never going to be able to do this again. It was a fluke. Yes. And Warren Buffett is quite
0: honest about the fact that he's a value investor and there are times in the market, like recently where growth is stomping in, in, uh, uh, value. So, you know, he knows that there's going to be times when he's not going to look so good, but they're always saying, you know, we're better. Now you see a lot of these companies like Fidelity, like McKinsey, they're bringing out their own ETFs. The banks, the only bank that really jumped in wholeheartedly was Bank of Montreal. They've got a huge selection of ETFs, okay. but Royal Bank got in, I think they're the biggest bank. They started just with a few bond ETFs and now they've got a whole suite of ETFs, all kinds, including even socially responsible ETFs, sustainable economy ETFs, okay. they realize that's the the trend, that's where the growth is going to be, and they're all saying that's what the younger consumer wants because it's easier and they feel better about it. And
1: So in order to keep their clientele from going to robo-advisors, yes. they realize, well, some of them have bought the robo-advisors yeah. or invested in them anyway to get their technology, and that's a whole different story, I'm sure. I don't know if you've talked about you know who owns who and and uh, where the money comes from but like yes you know, well simple has yeah.
0: power financial which owns investors group yes which is now called ig financial yeah and move, yeah. um <laughs> ci which is a big
1: fund company just bought wealth bar which is one of the bigger okay. robo
0: advisors
1: yeah. and they're buying them but leaving them of course like um, investors group doesn't run wealth for example no. right uh, or, no. and they're not really affiliated no, but, but
0: Power Financial, the holding company, can see that it had better have a foot in this new uh
1: That's uh, right. Camp, And so the bank, so if you are with a bank and you are just terrified to move any of your money around, at least now, you can move to better products?
0: Yes. HSBC, they've got a robo-advisor now. I think Bank of Montreal Investor Line has a robo-advisor. Yeah. And I think one of the biggest things for Canadians has been for three or four years now, Questrade running those commercials okay. about these fees are too high. I need to move somewhere else yeah. or the advisor says well i'm I'm retiring, and here's my um, junior that you're going to be working with, and she said i'm tired of supporting you, and I'm not going to support this one either I'm yeah. going to questrade yeah. and they've got across the message about high fees in a way that journalists never can because even if we write it every you know uh, day it's not the same as a commercial that you see three or four times every evening on the evening news
1: yeah that's true well because even if like let's go back to when you started investing even if you had low mer's you would still have to pay like brokerage fees right yes for trading or buying and selling and and would you have set up originally uh to do like a monthly like automatic contribution or were you would you buy lump sum things at, at that time I was buying more lump sum things, and I would put money into the RSP once a
0: year, yeah. and we'd invest it. And every once in a while, if I got a little bit extra, I'd put it in the RSP. Okay. So we are building it up that way.
1: Yeah, because you and Ed bought a house uh, yes. early early days, 80s? Uh, uh, 79.
0: 79.
1: Okay, yes. I, I, we need to talk about this yeah. a little bit. Okay. <laughs> now, in Toronto. Yes. We don't have to get into details, of course, because, you know, whatever you don't want to talk about, but I'm sure you reveal whatever you want. We
0: were lucky. We both had the, uh, what was then called the RHOSP, the Registered Home Ownership Savings Plan. Interesting. And the government has been going in and out of this kind of thing for a while. Is
1: that uh, become the home buyer's plan as part of the RSP? Yeah. it, It
0: always is a little different when they rename it and so on. Sure. And then my parents gave me a little bit of money and we bought a house that was in central Toronto and it had had just been renovated. And it was, I think, $72,000.
1: And what Reasonable, was it? Right? Oh, Do you actually pay for it? What was the down payment?
0: Maybe about 20000 with our savings and with my parents' contribution. Wow, okay. So that's great. And, and it was a lovely house. Just loved it. But it was 11 feet wide. And okay. <laughs> on the second floor, we had three bedrooms, but one of them was cut off by the stairs, so it was only nine feet wide, so we couldn't even fit a double bed in there.
1: Is it this room? Wait, what's No, a, this no, room's this, bigger than this that. This is bigger than that, so yeah. like 11 feet, like a, a person and a half Think of a so. basketball player. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just okay, a little yeah, bit, bit wider than him. <laughs> you can stand up sideways in, in here for sure. Yeah. So, so then what happened to that one?
0: We had our first child there, yeah. and we liked it a lot. Had a finished basement, which I really enjoyed, uh, and a little backyard, but... By the time the second child came along, he would have to get that tiny bedroom. Okay, and yeah. It was just really too small. So we found another spot a little further away. And by that time, we had the equity in the house. It, I think it had almost doubled at that point.
1: Sure, okay. And
0: we bought it. We had a mortgage. And we've been there since 86. So the baby and the house purchase and the closing were like within a week of each other. It was wow. very intense and crazy. but because I work full time and because, um, I'm not really into home decorating or anything. We never renovated, you you know, Dave Chilton in the wealthy barber returns talks a lot about what is Diderot's syndrome or something where once you start renovating, it's just this one room, but then this room doesn't go with the other room. And then yeah, this door doesn't match everything else. Or they tear down the walls and they find mold. And (laughs) yeah. So by the time you've overpaid, like the value of the house with all the renovations and just yeah. goes on. Never did renovations. In fact, when we moved in, I told the people who are moving out, leave all your hooks on
1: the wall and I'll just put my pictures where your pictures were. <laughs> and so really none. Like, yeah. Are you saying you're still there? Yes, we are. This 32 is the same years. House. Wow, okay. Yeah, it's still so there. So you buy this house. I mean, you don't have to, uh, say how much, but you, the 72000 and then... Uh, y-
0: it wasn't bad for Toronto either. 250000 Yeah. Yeah. And, and what were mortgages like at this it's point? It's semi-detached. It's got three floors. Okay, yeah. Uh, mortgages weren't bad. Uh, and we had a home equity line of credit. Okay. Uh, which we probably used maybe more than we should have as the kids were going... You know, getting yeah. older, uh, summer camp, all that kind of stuff. But eventually, as they, we had RESPs for their education. Yeah. And both of them, just on their own, picked the University of Toronto. So nice. they, uh, we decided because they weren't going away, we would help them live in residence. in Even in Toronto, though, we live fairly close to U of T yeah. because they had residence spots. So both of them were residents for two years and then came back for two years and lived with us was great for them great for us yeah Uh, they didn't have debt Um, now they're out of the house we still like the house it's still not overly big for us and as long as we can stay there I think we'll just stay there because it's a great location
1: yeah so a home equity line of credit is this something that you would recommend to people today I don't know I find that the banks are
0: very good at recommending them like early on it's always like it costs money to put on the home equity line of credit. You have to have an appraisal and you have to have legal fees. Okay. And if you do it right so now, we're going to pocket some of those costs and mm. absorb them for you. So then they'll give you, you know, you're buying, say, with a, what, what's a decent mortgage day, maybe 400000 and sure. we'll give you 200000 in your home equity line of credit. Okay. And then for most people having that money and having it so convenient to be able to use it. They tend to overindulge. It's just yeah. when you have access to credit, it's very hard not to use it.
1: What were you using yours for?
0: Um, home repairs. Yeah. Uh, I think we bought a car with it once because it was much cheaper than the car loan that the bank was offering.
1: Okay. and uh, Just so that you wouldn't have to touch savings or yes. I- any registered accounts or anything like that? Okay, yeah. And because uh, I, you know, I'm uh, uh, going through an addiction. I'm very uh, debt averse and going through a consumer proposal, right? And paying oh, it all okay. off myself, right? Yes. I was, uh, my credit rating was ruined for seven years and I'm. So when I think about going to debt, uh, you know, mortgage, of course, we have no choice, right? There's no, you can't, you don't have a million dollars in cash or 500,000 in cash. You don't have, nobody has cash like that, right? So you have to have a mortgage. At
0: least with a mortgage, you pay principal and interest. Mm -hmm. And if you can put more money in the mortgage, you pay the principal more quickly and you're not paying it all to interest. So you can accelerate it. But with a line of credit, many people don't realize that when the bank tells you to pay X and X every month. That's just interest. It's like running on a treadmill. There's no way to speed it up. They're not getting anywhere. And then those who do realize it will think, well, my house is going up in value and houses go up in value every single year. Okay. I still remember in the, what was it? The late 1980s after we bought our house, maybe about 1990 was when Toronto went through its last real estate, big correction of about 30%. It took more than 10 years for people to get their money out of those houses after that because- Real estate corrections last longer than stock market corrections. And if you make it in inflation ingested terms, many people didn't get back to where they were until about 2005. So that was 15 years of being underwater on their house. And it can happen. It's not happened because of you know the fact that we've had easy money and low credit, but the government keeps making it harder and harder for people to qualify. And um, now they've introduced something in the budget where the CMHC might get a stake in your house.
1: Yeah, I just heard about that. Uh, Rubina was telling me about that, actually, because she's been reporting on it, too and do you do you know the details does that mean that they uh they get like say five percent of your house wherever it ends up uh, being like or is it five percent of like the purchase price
0: it was just in the budget and the budget doesn't usually give much detail so you have to wait until the legislation comes out but it sounds like it will be five percent of whatever the value is when you're you know, when you're getting rid of the mortgage or when you're selling your house. Yeah.
1: And so they, they, then they just own part of your house. Yeah, I guess, I mean, the bank owns uh, the rest of it. (laughs) Yeah. Technically. Right. Okay. So you got in early and I mean, that's, that's, that was just a thing to do is buy a house too. Right. And it's, it's a lot harder today and it's a lot harder to do what you did. But I mean, if you can, you know, buy assets, assets is how uh, wealth is created. Yeah.
0: And I also think it's really important. And Certainly, we were able to do it partly because uh had a bit of inheritance when I lost okay. a parent. But to get rid of that mortgage before you retire, Ooh. because many people are now going into retirement with a mortgage, which means you have uncertainty about rates, yeah. you have something taking away from your income, and you're like a hostage to it. Absolutely. So it's so much better to have a debt-free uh, retirement, or at least have the biggest debt
1: paid off, and not have to worry about it. So make that a priority then. Yeah. So I want to talk about uh, barriers kind of in general, uh, barriers that you faced reporting on this stuff like from like industry, but also like barriers to people learning about money to start. Then you, you would have reported on, you know, MERS are too high, mutual fund companies are bad. And did they just like come after you? What happened?
0: Yeah, I, I think I, when I started reporting on business at the Financial Post, it was mid nineteen seventies, very few women were even reporting about business. Yeah. It was mostly all men. Sure. We had a woman economist on staff and we had a woman who wrote about stocks, but nearly everybody was men. So when I'd show up and I was still in my twenties, people would always say, You're the one from the Financial oh, Post. Man. Okay. So there was a lot of, you know, issues about that. Later when I got into the report on business, there were more women, but I realized early on that there was a real need to educate myself, so I took the Canadian Securities course. I started taking some of the financial planners courses until I ran into their tax course, which was (laughs) terrible, and that was the end of my CFP, right, (laughs) yeah. And you had to be credible and knowledgeable, and having uh, some designations really helped. Then later on, I actually was on the Financial Planning Standards Council Board as a public member, which was really interesting. That's great. I was so interested in financial planning. And yes, at a certain point, I was writing about the real estate market at the time when it was going down. Mm. And many real estate agents would write, You're causing people to panic. You're the reason why our sales are doing badly. <laughs> you're like, thanks you know, for all the power. We're the messenger, right? Yeah.
1: <laughs> I didn't know I had that much power, but uh, thank you. So they blame the messenger a lot of the time. Really? And
0: sa- same thing with mutual funds, especially when the markets were going down, you know, it was at our fault. We were, we were encouraging people to cash out. I don't think we ever did that. I think, you know, the responsible investment journalist says, hold on if you can. Yeah. But maybe, you know, if it That's makes you true. very uncomfortable, try and adjust your holdings so that you're not overly exposed it was maybe you had too much risk to begin with. Sure. But I, I know I've written that article many times, as have others, that if you think you're smart enough to cash out before the market collapses and then get back in before the oh. market rises, that's two times you have to be right. You're a genius. And it's the yeah. second time that's the hardest because you never know when the market's going to go up. And that's right. At times you're scared is probably when you should be investing, and that's when you're never going to do it, even if people tell you you should.
1: Just take the emotions out and yeah. invest regularly, right? Yeah. That's the, the benefit of automation is just that. It's not like timing the market. Nobody can do it. Yeah. No, and, yeah, you've probably written so much about that. It, it, everyone gets scared when things go down, and that's the opportunity to buy. Yeah, and then there's the other part of it, which uh, is newer,
0: is, well, if you buy stocks or ETFs that have dividends... And focus on the dividends and your dividend income, yeah. you're gonna be so much happier because dividend income tends to go up even when the market goes down or it stays stable in any case. So forget what the market's doing and just look at your dividend income and watch it grow as you get closer to retirement. And that will be another stream of income for you when you retire.
1: Yeah, that's the and dividend income is taxed preferentially if it's yes. your only income, right? Do you know where what the limit is these days? Is, I you know last time I checked it was in the forties or fifties. Was it that
0: much? I thought the it was thirty. Oh, And you had no other income. If you have no other income.
1: Okay. So maybe I was projecting. But But one thing
0: I do know, and anybody who gets old age security knows that your dividend income, if it's in a taxable account, it's grossed up for tax purposes. Mm -hmm. And then that is what is included in your income, not... After the dividend tax credit is applied, okay, so OAS clawed back. So yes, so those dividends in a taxable account Ah, make you much more likely to get it clawed back.
1: Okay, interesting. Okay, so you face barriers as a woman in the the we're saying seventies, eighties, nineties, and
0: as a consumer advocate for sure, because business people tend to be. They read the paper, especially they read the business section. They write letters to the editor. They're not happy. Uh, when I got into this defending the consumers, some of the co- big companies really hated it. Yeah, Bell Canada, who oh. you know I used to be an <laughs> owner of it, they were really unhappy with some of the stuff I wrote because I didn't write about their stock. I wrote more about the way they treated customers. That's and it. People were writing to me all the time about how – They couldn't get through the company even if they did the company didn't pay attention they billed them forever they were just not listening there was no ombudsman there was no appeal mechanism it's gotten a lot better now at least for the media side of things because when i send complaints that customers send to me the media person at bell rogers all these companies the banks a lot of them i do a lot of it at night at 11 o'clock at night when i'm watching the news these people often get back to me at night they mm. take it really seriously. They yeah. follow up really quickly. So they are concerned about their public image. But for the customer, they sometimes feel that nobody pays attention. Nobody cares. They're stuck in a call center. They can't get out of the call yeah. center. They can't get the info on the executives. Um, so they really need someone in the media to help them just break through that corporate kind of wall of, don't talk to us. Leave us alone. Use our call center.
1: Is that why you're still freelancing now? That's so you why just... I still love it. Because yes. you're still like... The way that I look at quote unquote retirement lately is, you know, why would you stop? Like you've now built up this uh, amazing uh, knowledge base and skills and now you got to stop, right? (laughs) Like you should stop when you actually can't do it anymore. Yes. Right. Is that your perspective on retirement these days?
0: Uh, Yeah. I probably turn away more people than I used to because I used to write three columns a week. Now I'm just writing one. But if they have a really good story and it's one of the companies that I deal with, like I deal with the biggest companies with the biggest brand names because I figure that's where I get the traction. Sure. They really don't like looking bad in the media, but I don't deal so much with the door to door repair people or yeah. uh, car issues because they're so technical or sometimes computer issues. I'm looking for issues that would affect a wide swath of readers and errors by the company or bad policies or companies sometimes go into a funk where they just they upgrade their systems and then nobody can get through to them or when the government gets involved and the government starts telling companies how they have to run their business like air passenger rights you know that's a big thing right now. Despite the fact I've been writing about these consumer issues for you know a few decades there's always something new to write about and lately a lot of it is a online sales and the problems with deception through online sales and Mm. also frauds and scams and people just getting taken in because fraudsters are endlessly inventive. And by the time we finish writing about their latest scam, they're on to the next one.
1: Yeah, because uh, the Internet changed everything. Yes. Even though I thank you for retweeting my uh, mail uh, uh, funeral insurance one, because I just can't believe that people are trying to take advantage of of people that don't know any better. It's like, sure. Yeah. Funeral insurance from Canada government might not be enough, but don't present yourself as an authority and 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 that's is that a lot of the angle that people they try to present themselves as this is the only option for you
0: there's one that got to me recently uh i think this woman was about 70 and she said that her hair was starting to thin and she didn't like how it looked, so she decided she was going to buy a wig and felt really embarrassed about it so didn't really ask her friends and she started looking online and she found a company that was offering something that looked really nice. It looked like her style and everything mm. else. And it was $125. Okay. So she did a little bit of research, not very much, sent the money or she did a PayPal. Yeah. It didn't come right away. So she's back and forth. Where is it? Where is it? So then it finally came and she said it looked nothing like mm. the product that was online, the photo. She went back to them and she said, you have a refund policy. They said, "Well, yes, but it's such a, a hassle because we don't want you have to send it back. Well, you're, you're going to have to pay for the return, and then we have to send it back to you. So, how about if we give you a ten dollar, you know, off?" Oh. She said, "No." Yeah. You know, she eventually negotiated that they were going to give her, I think, twenty five dollars off, but it was still a hundred dollars. They they wanted her to exchange it. She said, "This is such a bad wig. I don't trust that any of your wigs yeah, will I don't be want any, any more better." Of your stuff. Yeah. And. Many, many emails back and forth. Uh, Turned out the supplier was in China. And then I started asking her questions like, how much research did you do? Did you check on how many complaints were online? And they sent her a bunch of, you know, it had a brand name and there were a bunch of complaints online, the Better Business Bureau. Oh, yeah. When you read the complaints, they were all like hers. Quality terrible, they won't give me back my money. So a refund policy written on the um, website of a company that you don't know at all, and you've given them access to your credit card, it's really a dangerous situation.
1: Do we have to do this for every company online now, though?
0: I think so. Yeah?
1: Is that really... but well, they're not already well trusted by you.
0: The rule that I give people is if you're giving your credit card information which yeah. is, you know, your number, your expiry date and your uh, three back, digit, yeah. yeah. Make sure this is a company that you know, you've heard of them before. They sure. have a reputation because once they get it one of the worst things is this online subscription. It's a free yes. trial for 14 days and then it turns into an
1: online subscription. And you don't even notice.
0: Yeah, and you don't realize that you're not just authorizing them for a $5 shipping fee, which is what they're telling you. You're authorizing them to charge you $200 a month. And by the time you get to them... They're going to give you maybe, they'll stop your subscription and they'll give me one month refund, but mm. you still are on the hook for $400. Then you go to your credit card company and they'll say, oh, you should have checked the terms and conditions. And you say, I didn't see them. Well, you should have looked for them. Mm. And this kind of stuff gets me really angry and it keeps me really busy too.
1: So if it's not a, a product, like a physical product, if it's a subscription, you the credit card company can't help you as much. Is that it?
0: Yeah. They feel that the customer should have taken more care. But as it started out, it was just the free trial, but now it kind of they pop it up on other websites like Costco had a lot of these. You oh, know okay. Are you a Costco customer? Please take a short survey and we'll give you a reward. Hmm. And then but it wasn't Costco, it was just on their There's site. Somebody else. Yeah. Okay.
1: So you're picking the big ones to write about, and you're, once a week.
0: Yes, but I only write once a week. I try and handle as many of these as I yes. can. So many of them I don't even write
1: about. You're not writing about them, but you're. But helping. I can get their money back, and yes. Because you, you have the you have the investigative uh, skills, and and uh, and the contacts. Contacts. That's yes. the main contacts thing. Contacts right? help, so, and
0: the fact that I've been doing this in the Star for twenty years, so they know that it's, it it's possible to write about it.
1: So you talked about uh, fair. Yeah, uh, which is sounds like a great um, organization. Uh, you're on a bunch of boards, or you have been. How do you get on these boards, or you do you make them yourself? Sometimes at <laughs> the fair, I guess you were part of putting it together.
0: No, I came in later. The oh, okay. first board I think I was on was the Credit Counseling Service of Metro Toronto. That's okay. what it was called then. Yeah, and it was because I had written about the credit score. No, I don't think they even had credit scores then. The you know, reporting. early on it was a credit report. Yeah, and The person who ran the Toronto Credit Bureau was on the board of the Credit Counseling Service, so she invited me on. That was really an education, you know, finding out how... They could help people who are in debt and the the, yeah. the debt problems of people. So I was on that for six years. Then my term ran out and then I was off it for, I don't know, 10 years. And then I came back for another six years and I was actually the chair of the board for a while. Okay. And I love that agency because they do such great work, though it's a tough area because, as you know, doing a consumer proposal or a uh, debt management plan through a credit uh, yeah. counseling service takes years five yeah. years six years and it does very hard for people to stay on it takes a lot of discipline
1: it took just over four years to pay off my proposal and then three years for it to clear my credit report yes so it's about the same time as a bankruptcy would be uh, as well and yeah it's great that did this become credit canada yes yeah credit so, canada
0: debt solutions because yeah. they took over someone else and we tried very hard to persuade companies to not uh, give you the R9, which is the worst if you'd yeah. done the consumer proposal or the debt management plan. <laughs> I an R9 rating. And they just considered it all the same. You know, it's, if you're in trouble with debt, you're just a bad
1: uh, risk for it us. It kind of sucks because, you know, you get this label, it's inability to pay debts as they become due. And that, that wasn't true, right? I just made some mistakes, right? And, yeah. I, and I, I went through this process that was a government process that was there for me to use. It didn't mean that I couldn't pay my, my phone bill. Didn't mean I wouldn't pay my rent. Rent's not even included. I'm excited about fintech companies that are coming up with different types of credit scores, oh, the ones yeah. that are based on rent, ones that are based on your banking activity. The two the two options being that number one, it it uh, gives you some cr- sort of credit history if you don't have tons of you know credit cards or if you don't even like credit cards. If you paid your rent for 15 years on time. It actually will mean something, and on top of that, it'll expose um, the serial uh, squatters. That you've probably seen over the years, uh, you know, the ones who move oh, in yes. and then don't never pay their rent. They default oh. constantly. And, yeah. and if you saw this person's history, oh, you've lived in like 17 different places. I wonder why that is. I personally believe that our credit reporting system, well, it's made by the banks, so of course it's serving the banks. But it doesn't really help in a lot of other ways if you don't like having loans and credit cards all the time. You know, being on the council, you've reported on credit reporting Yes, sure a lot. yes.
0: Uh, in in my star work at yeah, Money 101 and sure, Money yeah. the, 201, the books. The books yeah. Yes. So uh, the credit system and these days payday loans. And oh. that's such a mess because it's not really regulated the way you want it to be. And there's no database for payday loans. So you can't roll over the same loan with the same company, but you go to a new company, they have no way of knowing how many other payday loans you have. So sometimes the legislation just leads to bad effects.
1: How do we fix all of this stuff, like all of this uh, financial literacy, the payday loans? To be on the board of of Credit Canada for a while, it means there's got to be people with lots of credit problems. So what's the theme of of how we move forward with this?
0: Well, there's a lot of people writing about money. And while I've written about money for my career, I've written a lot about consumer issues. Mm. So I think that One of the things that benefits you as a consumer, because you can get into a lot of trouble as a consumer, which can affect your ability to save for the future and buy your RSP and everything else, is be less trustworthy. I find that all of us tend to believe what we read, Mm -hmm. what we see, the ads. Always say whenever a company tells you something or somebody comes to your door representing a company, say... What's the downside? What's the worst thing that can go wrong? Don't tell me the good stuff. Tell me the bad stuff. Yeah. Or immediately say, well, that sounds interesting, but I don't believe in buying right now. I'm going to go and do my own homework. And then online, there are great resources. You know, you start looking for the company name, plus complaints, plus lawsuits, plus articles. What I find is Google eventually finds you a lot of stuff, but you have to keep looking. So don't just quit after the first, you know, bunch. Keep looking down, 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 down. And eventually you really get to the point where you're getting good information That means for me, too, that some of my articles are on Google. People are coming to me like seven or eight years later. I'm surprised these articles are still online, (laughs) and they're saying, I read this and I read this, but Google still is the predominant search engine, and that's where a lot of the information is. So keep looking and wait 24 or 48 hours. 48 hours is a good rule. Whenever you have an impulse to buy something that's a fairly large amount, spend that time doing the research, consulting your uh, significant others thinking about what are your alternatives, do you really need it, maybe you can wait, and a lot of the problems that we have are from our emotions and our impulses. Uh, There was a scam involving once where Apple would send you something where it showed that you'd bought, say, three or four different uh, uh, CDs on iTunes, and then it would say, if this isn't your purchase, click here. So I looked at it and I thought, this isn't me. It clicked here. And then I realized that was the, the scam, uh, right? Because yeah. they, they were here. taking advantage of my saying, my horror. This isn't me. I've been defrauded. And then saying, here's a way to get out of it. So they're mm. always looking at our unconscious impulses and yeah. our feelings that we're going to avoid fraud. And those are the best fraudsters who are helping you avoid fraud.
1: Oh, that is so smart.
0: Yeah. So always just take it slow and think a lot. Do the research don't really sign up right away a lot of young people now will say well they gave me a contract but I didn't really see it until I went home and they seem so trustworthy and so I signed never sign or never agree because that can really hurt you
1: so take your time yeah be a vigilant consumer right the, the we tend to be what is it penny wise and pound foolish right like like we 're spending all this time picking the right tomato at the at the grocery store, but we just buy the most expensive car or something like that, right yeah,
0: and subscriptions can cost you money long term mortgages can cost you money yeah. you don 't realize at the time that if you 're stuck and you got to pay a whole bunch of money to get out of it. It would have been a lot better to do that upfront research and kept it short, maybe instead of getting into this longer bad deal.
1: That's right, and and of course we have people like you who are you know filling in the blanks. If we uh, <laughs> if we miss this piece or that, you know, read all of Ellen's stuff. So we're, uh, people can just read it, read you in the Star.
0: Yeah, if you go to the Star, all my articles are there for about I think there's a thousand of them there. Sure hard to find them all but you can read them one by one there's the podcast that I do at yes, Atlanta course Lana,
1: what's the name of the podcast
0: money saver podcast money saver podcast Lana's yes. uh, from
1: the mon- the Canadian money saver yes
0: yes. I also do a lot of stuff on Facebook I have a public Facebook page I have Twitter I love you know that kind of stuff I did have a blog it's still up there and my old things are there but I haven't blogged for the last couple of years
1: oh and roseman.com yes thanks so much for coming on the show this is really great thanks for coming to the studio you know the new baby is uh keeping me He's keeping adorable. Me <laughs> he is. He's, he's pretty great. And uh, so we're pretty happy. And uh, I got to keep getting the podcasts out, though. That's the problem, right? I could only set myself up for about uh, 12 weeks. And then uh, I'm like, I need more interviews. So let's start it up again. So, okay. I've, you know, i am wanting to get you on the show for a while, of course. Uh, you know, you are, you're the, the advocate. You're the, you know, and you're talking so much about, uh, you know, personal finance and for women, uh, especially it's very important. Confidence and building all that up, and are you speaking uh, anywhere?
0: I'm actually doing a course at the Ryerson Life Institute, which is for older people, called okay, yeah. "How to Be a Smart Consumer and Not Get Ripped
1: Off." Oh, love that! So
0: this should be really interesting for older people yeah. because they have their own issues. Uh, in many cases. Exactly. Uh, are
1: you still teaching uh, too? Uh, yes, at U of T. Yes. So?
0: Uh, with um, someone else, we do a one-day introductory investing workshop yeah. twice a year, okay. and then Investing for Beginners is in the fall,
1: and people can probably find links to yes, that. Yes, at uh,
0: University of Toronto Continuing Studies.
1: Yeah, Continuing Studies. Okay. And, uh, yeah, so that's awesome. And uh, I'm sure you'll uh, be at conferences and other things like that. So just, you know, go to the website and or Google, Google Ellen Roseman and look for her, her BBB uh, rating. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I hope it's a good one. <laughs> right, th- I don't think I'm there yet, but <laughs> I go there a heck of a lot to check on other people and companies. Perfect. Great to meet you, both. Thanks, so. Alan. And that was episode 79 with Ellen Roseman. If you're listening to this before April 28th, 2019, which for me is this coming Sunday, you can still register for Ellen's Intro to Investing Workshop that she mentioned. Otherwise, it's on again in November and probably every year after that. Check EllenRoseman.com for the latest. If this was your first time tuning in, you should check out my 75th episode where I have one-minute segments for each of the 74 episodes that came before it. It's a quick way to find an episode that you might be interested in without listening to hours and hours of the show. I'd also like to introduce you to a new podcast. It's called Dear Ruby, and it features my friend Rubina ahmed Haq. and I am the co-host and technical producer. And just head to dearruby.com, D-E-A-R-R-U-B-I.com, and uh, check out the episodes there, or it's you know, on iTunes, all the regular places. You should be able to find it wherever you find this show. And I'm really excited about that. We just got started, and I'd love to hear what you have to say. You can also record a question for us and submit it on the website. That's what the whole uh, podcast is about. It's about your questions. If you're a regular listener of this show, thanks so much for downloading the episodes every week. Another way you can support the podcast is by going to my Patreon site and becoming a patron. The link is at the end of the show notes. In most podcast apps, otherwise, just head to patreon.com slash Humphreys. Patreon is a great tool to help creators get paid for their creations. It's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. I also have a Facebook group for the podcast. Just head over to Facebook and search for The Personal Finance Show if you want to join that group. That's it for this episode. I'll be back next week with Michael Cruz, producer and host of the Title Block podcast.